All right, we are back. I want to talk about the NATO summit from last month. Uh, we were talking earlier about the fact they can't seem to decide, uh, you know, whose missiles we're going to be defending ourselves against. Every bit as bad as that is the fact that uh, NATO forces can't seem to decide when they want to get out of Afghanistan. As you recall, after we elected President Barack Obama, there were promises of getting us out of there by uh, the summer of 2011. Well, now they're saying, that eh, might just be a little too soon. Writing in the LA Times about the NATO summit, Christy Parsons and Paul Richter noted that NATO leaders gathered in Lisbon to sign an agreement with the Afghan government to transfer primary security responsibility from alliance to Kabul by 2014. As NATO gradually shifts focus to training, advising, and logistics. But officials are carefully hedging the timeline in light of the uncertainties in the military effort and the training of Afghan security forces. And let's talk a bit about uh, what's going on in Afghanistan. Unlike the war in Iraq, which made no sense from a geopolitical standpoint, the war in Afghanistan did have some justification. It was the base from which Al-Qaeda allied with the Taliban as it was, was able to launch attacks on America, most notably the carnage of September 11, 2001. As you may recall, last June, geologists announced that Afghanistan apparently had trillions of dollars worth of mineral reserves under the ground, underground, which frankly may have something to do with why we're going to have a prolonged stay over there. But yes, it's rather startling to realize that we now have a four-year plan starting now and running till 2014 on, as to how we're going to exit the country. And whose hands are we going to put the country in four years from now? Well, Hamid Karzai, maybe? Then again, maybe not. Karzai was complaining around Halloween that uh, he'd not been informed in advance of a, a Russian participation in a NATO-led drug raid that netted $56 million worth of heroin and morphine. And because of this diplomatic breach, his administration demanded a formal apology from the alliance. Apparently in October, Russian counter-narcotics agents teamed up with U.S. and Afghan forces to seize four drug labs in an unprecedented joint raid in Nangahar province near the Pakistani border. This action came less than a week after Russia's anti-narcotics chief accused the U.S. of failing to dismantle such labs and slow down the flow of heroin into Russia. Of course, the subject of Russia's invasion of uh, Afghanistan back in 1979 is still a bit of a sore subject, as I suppose is the U.S.-Saudi combined effort to raise fundamentalist Islamic armies to fight the Russians, which has turned out to, you know, have had some unforeseen consequences. But uh, U.S. military and civilian officials are trying to claim that we're making progress in the Afghanistan war. A couple months ago, Defense Secretary Robert Gates went over to Afghanistan and asked, are we headed in the right direction? Do we have enough, do we have enough evidence of progress that tells us we are, in fact, on the right track? Based on what I've seen here today, I'm hopeful that we will be in that position. By the way, this is the same guy I think we mentioned a while back that failed to notice that the USSR was about to implode. I know one thing, by staying in Afghanistan for years past our uh, previous deadline, it's going to cost the taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars, which um, I don't think we can afford right now, can we? 
I mean, defense is something that, you know, you don't have to, you know, you don't think about spending money on. You just do because you have to, except are we really defending ourselves from the Taliban? I mean, Taliban's a bad bunch. We don't want to see al-Qaeda gaining a, a, a toehold in that country. But let's talk about the realities. A couple months back, General Stanley McChrystal announced that the long-awaited campaign to secure Kandahar in southern Afghanistan would be delayed because of what he described as difficulty in winning local support. It's no secret that most Afghans have concluded that the U.S. is not their friend and that the U.S. is simply trying to buttress an existing network of corrupt government officials and local power brokers. Article by Jonathan S. Landy from McClatchy.com noted that uh, Afghans are whispering of rot at the top. McClatchy went over there to take a look at some, uh, some industrial projects in Afghanistan. Noted that a cement plant they went to check out is churning out less than 4% of the cement that uh, it was pledged to produce. Meanwhile, Mahmoud Karzai, the CEO of the Afghan investment company which runs the enterprise, turns out to be the brother of the president of the country. In the article by Jonathan Landy, it was noted that uh, the Gori Cement Factory and the nearby Karkar coal mine have become symbols of the corruption, nepotism, and mismanagement that pervade President Hamid Karzai's government. Writing about all this in the New York Times, Bob Herbert said, We've spent nine futile years in this graveyard of empires, and the 18-year-old American soldiers losing their lives were just nine when this all began. It's time to face reality. We're never going to empower the unempowerable Afghan forces or stabilize a hopelessly corrupt and incompetent civil society. In ordering 30,000 additional troops to Afghanistan last year, Obama promised a mission that is clearly defined. But that clearly defined mission has never materialized. The only question is whether Obama can find the courage to leave. Not long ago, a, a group called the Afghanistan Study Group, which is, officially, which is an unofficial group of 46 American foreign policy experts, issued a report arguing that the U.S. doesn't need to defeat the Taliban to protect national security and that building a stable central government in Kabul is beyond U.S. capabilities. Noted the study group, the current strategy isn't working and it's costing roughly $100 billion a year. And The Week magazine in its August 27th issue had a two-page uh, briefing on what we're up against in terms of being able to turn over the so-called defenses of the country to the locals. Article noted that everyone agrees that the key to enabling foreign troops to leave Afghanistan is to train local security forces to take over. The plan is to have 134,000 Afghan National Army troops and 94,000 police by October. Well, that was written in August, and I don't think they made their target. Last March, at a briefing on Afghanistan, President Obama asked whether the police would be ready when America's scheduled drawdown began in July 2011. He was told that proper training was just getting underway. According to somebody present, the president looked stunned. Eight years, he said, and we didn't train police? It's mind-boggling. Notes the article. The problem goes back to the beginning of 2002, after the Taliban had been ousted by allied Western forces. And what some would say later sounded like a joke, the Italians were given the justice system and the Germans the police. The project had just 28 trainers and a $14 million budget. That's with an M. They set out trying to create a German-style police force, trying to build the proverbial Mercedes-Benz, making sure they dotted all the I's and crossed the T's. However long it took, however long it took. That's according to an American colonel. Eventually, the U.S. lost patience with this effort, and the State Department got involved. 
They contracted out training to the U.S.-based private military company Dynacor. According to Colonel Paul Kalbos, Dynacor thought they could get these guys and in six or seven weeks could train them. But the first thing they realized was the recruits couldn't even spell their names. They had no idea about basic hygiene, so they had to spend 10 days training them how to wash and go to the bathroom. After that, they were given a belt, a baton, a uniform, boots, and sent off. When the State Department asked Dynacor how many they had trained, they said 30,000 to 40,000. What they meant was 30,000 to 40,000 had been through their camps. But when you asked, where is Mohammed or Bashir, they had no idea. And I know this isn't supposed to be funny, but I just can't help but laugh at some of this. Said Dynacor, apparently, you told us to build centers and train, not to track them afterwards. We can't stop them running away and selling their baton and uniform. An inquiry found 300,000 weapons had gone astray. Anyway, not to belabor this. Actually, I think we should belabor this a bit, given that we're talking about staying in Afghanistan so many extra years. Someone needs to ask what we would accomplish with that extra time and effort, given the fact that, for example, the problems with the, uh, with the defense forces going AWOL is related to the fact that only 3% of the people in the country have actual bank accounts. So when you get paid, you have to leave to deliver your money by hand to your family. Though oddly enough, about a third of the Afghan population does have mobile phones, which does have some enterprising people uh, thinking about how they could pay police salaries through text messages. Of course, in Afghanistan at present, 90% of the population remains illiterate, which actually makes it tough to read a four-digit PIN number, which means they have to do these text messages through a voice activation system. Curiously, once they got that going, they got 50 policemen calling on them to the authorities to say, God, thank you. We didn't know we earned $150 a month. Before that, the commander only gave us 30 It's also noted that uh, Islam does not condone homosexuality. And under the Taliban, the punishment was to bury perpetrators under walls. But uh, this turns out to be causing some social issues. The police chief of Helmand told reporters he was concerned about his men's behavior and he wanted it stopped. He was quoting from religious texts that a wall would fall on those who indulged. But uh, when people later toured the camp that evening, they found that his men were snuggled up as usual. NATO forces jokingly refer to uh, Thursday nights as Man Love Thursdays. It's the evening of seduction before Friday prayers, wherein certain policemen resembled a gaggle of teenage girls preparing for a night on the town. Their hands were dyed deep orange with henna. Their nails were painted. They had darkened eyes and brows. They would slow dance with one another to music from tinny cassettes or on improvised sitar-like instruments. On the whole, it was said the Western soldiers turned a blind eye to their charges' love lives, except when they were openly propositioned. They're always flirting with us, said one British soldier with a laugh. They make it very obvious they want to have sex with us. It freaks us out. should be noted that per an article sent to me a couple months back from Joe, titled Afghanistan's Dirty Little Secret, article by Joel Brinkley went on to note that for centuries, Afghan men have taken boys, roughly 9 to 15 years old, as lovers. The uh, NATO troops over there witnessing uh, older men walking hand-in-hand with pretty young boys uh, were somewhat perturbed by what they were seeing, noting that they were trying to fondle the boys. So the Defense Department hired a social scientist to examine the mystery. Apparently, uh, 
Military investigator Anna-Marie Cardinale filed a report titled Pashtun Sexuality, which startled not even one Afghan, per the article, but Western forces were shocked. Research suggested that about half the Pashtun tribal members in Kandahar and other southern towns had these boy lovers. The term was Bacha Baz. The men liked to boast about it, reportedly. An Afghan man was quoted as saying, whoever wants to show off should have a boy. By the way, evidently this tradition includes uh, the relatives of President Hamid Karzai. Some discreet inquiries uh, revealed that at least a couple members of uh, the Karzai family had some bacha bazas. The article quoted an American who worked in and around Karzai's palace in an official capacity for many months, told, uh, told the author that uh, homosexual behavior was rampant among soldiers and guys on the security de- to detail. They talked about boys all the time. He added, I didn't see Karzai with anyone. He was in his palace most of the time. Sociologists and anthropologists say this problem in Afghanistan results from a perverse interpretation of Islamic law. Women are simply unapproachable. Afghan men cannot talk to an unrelated woman until after proposing marriage. But then they can't even look at a woman except perhaps at her feet. Otherwise, she is covered head to ankle. A 29-year-old man named Mohammed Daoud told reporters, How can you fall in love if you can't see her face? We can see the boys, so we can tell which are beautiful. And the article goes on to note that even after marriage, many men kept their boys, which suggested a loveless life at home. A favorite Afghan expression goes, women are for children, boys are for pleasure. This does help to explain why women are currently hidden away in Afghanistan and sometimes get stoned to death if they're perceived to have misbehaved. And while Islamic law forbids homosexuality, the pedophiles over there explain that away. It's not homosexuality, they say, because they aren't in love with their boys. Notes the article in summary, addressing the loathsome mistreatment of Afghan women and boys remains a primary goal for coalition governments, as it should be. Said Cardinale, there's no issue more horrifying and more deserving of our attention than this. I'm continually haunted by what I saw. I want to read that full article, which is online, I'm sure, from Joel Brinkley. He's a professor of journalism at Stanford, former Pulitzer Prize-winning foreign correspondent for the New York Times. also recommend the full article by Christina Lamb, which was published in the Sunday Times of London and reprinted in the Week magazine. It closed by noting that uh, nobody has much to say about the, uh, the boys, the eyeliner, and the erotic undertow of law enforcement, Perhaps because as a benighted country begins to straighten out its disarray, Man Love Thursday seems the least of its problems. I don't know. If uh, homosexual pedophilia among your security forces who are illiterate is the least of your problems, you got some problems. Chris, some other problems we probably should mention since we're taking a deep dive into the pool of Afghanistan... Might be the story that's been smoldering about uh, soldiers who've been charged with murdering innocent Afghan civilians and keeping their bones as trophies. Apparently between January and May of this year, Army prosecutors say that members of the 5th Striker Combat Brigade, 2nd Infantry Division, killed at least three people for sport while high on hashish. Seven other members of the brigade were charged with lesser crimes, such as covering up the murders, A father of one platoon member said that he'd phoned an army hotline after his son emailed him about the killings, but that the sergeant he'd spoken to refused to take action. He just kind of blew it off, said Christopher Winfield, an ex-Marine. I was sitting there with my jaw on the ground. It's another ugly story we're going to have to probe in the new year. 
But uh, when I look at this L.A. Times piece, I think we mentioned earlier by Parsons and Richter, and the quote says, NATO leaders gathered in Lisbon signed an agreement with the Afghan government to transfer primary security responsibility from the alliance to Kabul by 2014. I have to think that's just a little too late. There are 150,000 troops over in Afghanistan at present. And according to Professor Peter Dale Scott, whom I'm inclined to trust, the number of Taliban in Afghanistan is currently estimated at 60. Yes, 6-0. Now, I don't know his source on that, but I, he's usually pretty good about digging up facts. You know, when, when even Newsweek, which has had quite a swing to the right in the past couple years, has a piece titled, We're Not Winning, It's Not Worth It. Here's How to Draw Down in Afghanistan by Richard Haas. You know, there seems to be a pretty wide consensus about what a disaster we are in the middle of over there. We're now into our 10th year in Afghanistan, and, and, and we just, we, we've just got to get out. What, what are we accomplishing? The country is a wreck. And uh, the host we've been pinning on Pakistan for, for helping us out of this mess, uh, well, that doesn't look to be a good bet. I want to cite last week's briefing paper from the Week magazine about uh, the ISI, which is the Pakistani Intelligence Agency, which apparently is working with both the United States and the Taliban. Noted the briefing that the duties of the ISI are vast. It's comparable to that of the CIA and the Pentagon's Defense Intelligence Agency combined, with a bit of the FBI thrown in. Article asks, who controls it? The answer was, that's not always clear. Ostensibly, the ISI answers to Pakistan's civilian government, but for decades it operated as an adjunct to the military. When General Pervez Musharraf was, was Pakistan's authoritarian president, he controlled the military and the ISI. Back in 2007, when he was forced to step down after a wave of protests against his abuses of power, the civilian government, headed by President Asif Ali Zardari, that succeeded Musharraf, had little influence over the military and appears routinely outmaneuvered by the ISI. For example, in 2008, the government announced that henceforth the ISI would answer to the Interior Ministry, which is responsible for police and domestic security. Within hours, the order was rescinded, presumably because the ISI refused to follow it. Some Pakistani lawyers, including uh, the late former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, Benazir Bhutto, who was assassinated, called the ISI a state within a state. Article notes that like other elements of the military, the ISI is preoccupied with Pakistan's chief rival, India. It battles India by proxy in the disputed provinces of Kashmir, where ISI-trained militants fight Indian troops. The ISA funded, armed, and trained an array of militant groups, not all of which it controls completely. Some have been implicated in attacks in India, notably the Lakshar El Taiba, which has been linked to the 2008 terrorist attacks in Mumbai, which killed 173 and wounded more than 300. Briefing asks, does the ISI support the Taliban and al-Qaeda? Well, it certainly has supported the Taliban in the past. After the 79 Soviet invasion, the ISI and the CIA worked together to fund, arm, and train the Afghan Mujahideen. When the Soviets withdrew, the ISI continued to support the militants, some of whom evolved into the Taliban. After the Taliban gained power, Pakistan was one of just three countries, along with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, to officially recognize their government. Many U.S. intelligence analysts believe the ISI secretly supports the Taliban still. And the question is, why should that be? The answer is money, for starters. 
As long as the U.S. remains terrified of Taliban gains in Afghanistan, dollars flow freely into Pakistan. The U.S. just announced another $2 billion in aid to the regime. But uh, the ISA also seeks to increase Pakistan's influence in Afghanistan while freezing out India. Analysts believe that the ISI may be able to use its influence with the Taliban to broker a deal between the, their factions and the Afghan government of President Karzai. Final question one, is that why the U.S. tolerates the double cross? The answer was yes, but also because it has little choice. The ISI's duplicity is simply an accepted fact. There was a little sidebar in this discussion. I know I really have, didn't expect to go into this long detour, but I think it's worth it. There's a little sidebar in this article asking, well, did the ISI kill Benazir Bhutto? She was murdered on December 27th, 2007. She just returned from exile to run for prime minister, a post she was, by the way, expected to win. She was standing in an armored car waving at supporters through the sunroof when a gunman opened fire. Then a suicide bomber struck simultaneously. Bhutto died of head wounds one hour later. No autopsy was performed. The crime scene and her car were both hosed down before investigators could gather evidence. Members of, the pa- her, members of her Pakistan People's Party said the facts pointed to a cover-up. Gee, you think? Her aides did note that Bhutto had been about to reveal evidence that the ISI was planning to rig the upcoming elections in favor of Pervez Musharraf. A UN report released this year said the ISI had, quote, severely hampered, unquote, the investigation of Benazir Bhutto's killing, but it stopped short of blaming the agency for her death. You know what? I think we need to break here pretty quickly. I think we'll close with a, a cartoon, which I think is somewhat apt. It shows Uncle Sam lecturing Hamid Karzai. Uncle Sam saying, Your country's becoming dominated by shadowy, unaccountable influences, using huge amounts of cash to purchase loyalty. To which Karzai looks back and says, Yours too. Anyway, there you have it. I'm tempted in our third segment to talk about uh, the uh, fascinating talk at the Commonwealth Club by Dr. Peter Dale Scott. I was privileged to be able to join uh, Dr. Scott along with David Talbot and uh, my good friend Dr. Gary Aguilar for dinner afterwards. But um, it's kind of heavy stuff, and I think we're going to leave that off till next week's program. So let's take a break, come back with some lighter fare. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.